0: Hey everyone and welcome to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts Jess and Alice. This week we're talking all about cadaver dogs and talking about the show Exhibit A, Season 1, Episode 3, which is all about cadaver dogs and what happens when these dogs go to work. So let's get into it.
1: So we know Exhibit A isn't the typical TV show that we normally watch and debunk on this podcast, but the series portrays the real uses of forensic techniques out there, so it kind of just seemed like the perfect show for us to watch and kind of dissect. This episode is mainly about cadaver dogs, and we've talked a little about cadaver dogs in the past, but we're going to be getting way more into their role and their specific cases that they're used for in this episode. So at the beginning of Exhibit A, there are two missing persons. The rescue team is mapping out the sectors, they're going to be searching, and they have cadaver dogs for them for the search. They have German Shepherds and a Labrador Retriever, and according to an article that we found called the Life of Dogs website about cadaver dogs, typically hounds, hunting dogs, and sheep herding dogs are the breeds most often used in cadaver dog training. And I I said this to Alice earlier, so I'm obsessed with corgis, and corgis are herding dogs. So I made a joke and I was like, what if a corgi was a cadaver dog? Like, You just see a corgi zipping through the woods.
0: So I know in one of our previous episodes, I said I would be, I'm upset I won't see my own autopsy. I'm also upset that if for some reason they need a cadaver dog to find me, if it's a corgi, I won't get to see it. (laughs) (laughs) I won't get to meet the corgi. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm picturing a little corgi with like the little like search and rescue vest. He's doing his job. (laughs) His little legs. (laughs) He's so cute. (laughs) Just running. Oh, man. Oh, man. I need to see this.
1: (laughs) So the main types of breeds used for human detection are Bloodhounds, Labrador Retrievers, German Shepherds. They're ranked the top breeds, and there's some others in there, but those are like the top breeds used. When you have dogs working in forensic roles, you need a canine expert to work alongside them. And for those who don't know, a canine expert is literally just that. They specialize in dogs and dog behavior. They help train dogs to perform certain jobs. And these cadaver dogs have been trained from the time they were puppies to detect human decomposition and how to determine animal decomposition from human decomposition. I find that fascinating that they can detect the two from each other. That they
0: have to just like dogs dogs and their sense like their their olfactory sense like is insane like how much stronger it is than ours. Like right? the fact that they're able to tell the difference between a Dead animal and a dead person. Mm-hmm. Like the smell of that is crazy to me. It's crazy. They are
1: a different breed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this has happened to me occasionally where like I'll be out somewhere and I'll like there will be like a dead animal carcass and it'll if it's like decomposing it'll smell like just to me it'll smell like decomposition that I'd smell in the morgue. Maybe not as strong but it'd smell like that but Knowing that a dog would be able to smell that and know, like, what kind of animal it was, or that at least it wasn't human, I'm like, that's insane to me.
1: Yeah. I really, I can't fathom that they can actually detect such, like, faint scents and be like, yes, this is it. They're incredible. So it's really important for the trainer of the cadaver dog to understand how human remains like decompose and there's four primary stages to decomposition. There's the fresh stage, bloat, decay, and the dry stage. So the fresh stage occurs right after death. The bacterial proliferation will start during this stage and the body will kind of in a sense start basically consuming itself. I know that sounds disgusting, but it's literally what happens yeah
0: hey we're inside the morgue here it's gonna be disgusting
1: and liver mortis which we've discussed it's the pooling of the blood after death and rigor mortis is the stiffening of your muscles this will all happen in the fresh stage and next stage is the bloat
0: alice's least
1: favorite stage it's so bad the worst stage Gases like CO2, methane, hydrogen, and hydrogen sulfide as a result of bacteria will cause the body to expand. The abdomen of the body will appear distended, which means like they look like they have a huge belly.
0: Just like balloons up. Yeah. Balloons up. That's a good term. It's so bad. And I I know I sound like a broken record because every time we talk about decomp on this podcast, I say that bloating is the worst. But it's just when you cut it, if you have to cut them, it just all those gases come out and it's horrible (laughs) it's horrible
1: there's no escaping it either and then after that the decay phase follows this stage and is noted by a loss of body mass so this is due to the liquefaction of tissue and purging of fluids associated with decomposition and then finally there's the dry phase as the name suggests the body turns dry and bodies that no longer have any dry skin they'll become skeletonized if the bones are exposed to the elements, they can become sun bleached, which means like if you have a skull and half of it's laying in the mud and half of it is exposed to the air and to the sun, that half that, that is exposed to the sun will literally become sun bleached as the name suggests and will become like way more white than the part that's in the mud.
0: Yeah, that's a, that was a very good explanation. I'm sitting here feeling like I'm learning. <laughs> We're in school again? <laughs> <laughs> Taking notes on when you're talking.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, Alice and I both went to the same university for our master's program, but we were in different years. Well, the same years, we yeah. learning different things at different yeah, times. Yeah, we
0: overlapped. We had different programs, but, but we like, both had overlapped.
1: an instructor, and he did like a whole canine lecture. So we were like looking back and reminiscing about what we were talking about during those days.
0: That was a fascinating lecture, that one. I. The whole lecture when the professor was talking about training his cadaver dog, it was. That's when I I still like I remember him talking about how he trained his dog to smell the difference between like, like a rotting chicken and like a rotting human, and that's why like stuck in my brain. I'm like, that's amazing that you. Trained a dog to learn the difference between these things.
1: The dogs are so willing to do it and they're so excited because they're doing their little job. Because they're and- dogs. <laughs> they're so pure. <laughs> they're so happy all the time. We don't deserve them. Anyway, there's a lot that you need to understand in order to kind of get the best out of a cadaver dog or any dog that's trained to do a job. And there isn't just training that, that the dog has to go through, but the handler also has to go through as well. We did some research on this, so it's recommended that people who are interested in SAR, search and rescue, or cadaver dog training, be someone who enjoys training dogs.
0: Obviously, why wouldn't you? I loved reading that on their website. They're like, step one, like dogs. I'm like, that's a very important step. Check. Got that. You're not <laughs> wrong. That is a very important step in this job.
1: They also must become proficient in navigation, map reading, radio protocol, Compass use, wilderness survival, a whole bunch of other things like that. And they also need to learn first aid, but not just for humans, but for specific canine first aid too, like for their dog in case something were to happen.
0: I don't know why I didn't think of that, but like, yeah, that makes so much sense. That makes total sense. I never thought of it. Because you're going to be in... So many different types of environments with that dog. Not just wilderness environments, but a lot of the time these dogs are used in mass casualty situations. Like I believe when Hurricane Katrina happened in the aftermath. I was just going to say... In the, the river,
1: like a whole bunch of like water searches, dogs are used Right, for that. and
0: the water searches and even just like buildings that had been destroyed, dogs would sometimes have to like go in tight spaces alone and if the dog gets hurt doing that, you need to know how to help this dog and I, yeah, I just, I don't know why I didn't think of that, but obviously, yeah, you need to know how to do that. Yeah, and, like, and you're
1: the trainer, so you are the primary person responsible for your dog. It is your responsibility.
0: I want to know if a regular civilian can learn canine first aid. Cause Just if, for funsies? If and when <laughs> I get a dog, I want to know, like, if something happens to my dog, I want to know how to take care of them until I get the I'm by. sure there's a class somewhere on YouTube. I am going to learn canine first aid. Now that I know it, it's a thing. I need to know it so I can help dogs. I'm going to help my future corgi. <laughs> Well, I hope your future corgi doesn't need first aid, but if he does, I hope you can help them.
1: The trainer, they also need to bond with their dog from the time that they're puppies, as well as to learn how to read the dog's specific body language. And it's also really important to socialize the future search and rescue or cadaver dog because out in the field, they will be encountering other animals and other people, and they'll need to know how to work and do their job in environments with a bunch of other distractions. So, clearly, there is a lot of knowledge involved in handling dogs, and one of the stories in the episode from Exhibit A, that the canine expert they were interviewing, he was sharing a story that took place in 2005. He took his then-police dog over to America, they were filming this show in London, and he was asked to go search a couple of locations, and they found a house that had a basement, and they took the dog down there, and the dog responded to a pillar... But there was nothing to suggest that there was ever a dead body in the house. And the floor was checked and everything like that. And there was nothing there. And they left the building and the team was questioning, like, what does this mean? Is he really doing his job? Like, what's happening? And the canine expert looked down the street and there was a graveyard that had thousands of dead bodies decomposing in the ground less than 100 yards from the house.
0: I was curious about this because... Wouldn't those people, would they be embalmed? Hmm. Like maybe not all of them, because I guess it depends on the family's wishes. But I want—I was wondering if that affects, if there is an embalmed body, if it affects like the cadaver dogs. Right? Because that's a whole different smell. Yeah. I guess you don't have to be embalmed to be buried in a graveyard. So there's probably some people that weren't embalmed and that might have been what the dog was smelling. But I was wondering if that's part of the training for like a cadaver dog. I don't know. That's interesting. I never thought of that know why they'd ever be looking for someone who was embalmed because if they were embalmed you probably know where they were buried or if there was like
1: a landslide and the graves got all messed up and you were trying to figure out like where they went to and you couldn't find them
0: that's a good maybe
1: that's the type of situation
0: yeah i might be making things up but i think that happened in hurricane katrina i think there was because the storm like grave disturbances yes and they had to differentiate between people that had passed away as a result of the horrific storm that came through or if they were from like cemeteries and were just like i think i think that's i think it was happened. hurricane katrina i'm trying to remember if it was a different hurricane but i think it was and so i yeah i wonder if cadaver dogs haven't have i mean i'm sure they do they have such other sensitive noses but i just want to know how you train someone for that a dog for that. I
1: feel like I need to find somebody that we're friends with in law enforcement to see if they have, like, a canine unit and if they know that question. Yes.
0: I'm just going to email them (laughs) right right now and be like, hey, just wondering. They're going to think I'm up to something so shady. I'm not. I'm just curious. I'm just curious. You know I work at a morgue. uh, But would your your dogs be able to find a body if it weren't bombed? They'd be like, Alice, what are you up to? (laughs) Jess
1: and Alice, you need to calm down. (laughs) So in the show, they found that the dog's response to this wasn't really a great surprise. But again, we're kind of questioning, like, if that's possible. And now I need to, like,
0: find the answer. Yeah, I'm sure it's possible. Because like I said, like, decomposition does happen at a slower rate. And I'm sure there were some people that weren't embalmed, maybe, that were buried. And maybe for, like, religious reasons, the family didn't embalm or something. And so I'm sure there there was Mm -hmm. natural decomposition happening there that the dog was smelling. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So...
1: A dog is a very cognitant being, and he makes conscious decisions for itself, and, I mean, I talked about it, you definitely need to have a bond with that dog, and that dog needs to respond to you, and you need to respond to that dog's behavior, and you also need to have a background in weather conditions and environmental conditions that affect the odor, because, again, the dog is relying mainly on odors, so there may be different things affecting that, and... Dogs are mainly scavengers, which are animals that consume dead organisms that have died from predation or have been killed by predators, and they are genetically attracted to decomposing blood, bone, and flesh. Their threshold to this scent is very low, so trainers definitely need to train that dog to have a visual or audible response to the odor rather than be attracted to it as a food source. And the interviewer asks the expert how he would describe the smell of human decomposition. So Alice, how would you describe the smell of human decomposition?
0: I have been asked this so many times and I couldn't never figure out the words for it. And I always hear people say that it smells like sweet and putrid, but I don't yeah. I don't get that. Do you? No, I just smell
1: rotting meat, basically. Yeah. But it depends on the type of decomp.
0: Then the smell is different. Exactly. Yeah. And it's whenever people described it as sweet and putrid, before I had experienced decomp, I was trying to envision it. And then Or not envision it, smell it. And when I finally had my first decomp, I was like, I didn't think that smelled sweet at all. Like, people are like, oh, it's overly sweet and putrid. I was like, is my nose broken? I didn't think it smelled sweet. No, I mean, like, I think when we have, like,
1: diabetic deaths and, like, really people with really high ketones, like, that is a sweet Mm -hmm. smell. Even though they're not decomposing quite like how, like, we're thinking of decomposing bodies. Like, completely gone, unrecognizable. But, like, a fresh
0: death that he was like a diabetic they have a sweeter smell you can also smell if somebody had consumed a lot of alcohol before they died oh yeah and you open them it smells like alcohol so we're not cadaver dogs but as soon as we open someone we can tell like okay we need to run we're like hey he's not yeah oh hey you were drinking or oh hey we need to run ketones or glucose because this person might be diabetic because they smell very sweet I honestly don't know how I would describe decomp other than like rotting flesh like if you've ever left meat in your fridge for too long and it didn't smell great just amplify that by like 100
1: yeah Uh, that's how i was gonna answer too that's that's my same answer i mean he the expert in the show said he thinks it smells sweet and putrid and we've said putrid a few times for those who don't know what putrid means it literally means decaying or rotting and emitting an unpleasant smell Just a little fancy word
0: there. Once you smell decomp, you'll know it when you smell it. Like you'll never be able, like if I'm walking somewhere and I I smell like there's like a dead animal near that's been in the woods for a bit, like and I get a whiff of it. I'm like, oh my God, it's decomp. And I look and it's like a dead deer or something. That happened to me once. I was like, oh my God, what is it? And. I was like, is this the moment that I find a dead body in the wilderness (laughs) while I'm on a hike? And it's like, no, it was a deer. No, it's
1: just a deer. (laughs) My dream
0: is to still find a dead body. (laughs) Clearly, I'm not a cadaver dog. I didn't know. I got excited. I reacted like you're not supposed to if you're a cadaver dog. I reacted to an animal, not, not a human.
1: But yeah, I mean, like, unless you smell decomp, there's really, like, no great way to describe it until you smell it yourself. Yeah. Dogs are more efficient and more proficient when they're in like a training lab setting where all the dog has to do is sniff tests and the answer is either a yes or no and once you've established that the dog can achieve that mission of yes or no then they're taken out to like a training site outside to do the actual job and the cadaver dogs aren't used as an evidential tool the dogs are used to point the team in the right direction of where to look for evidence to be recovered so for example you and the dog are in a parking garage and the dog detects a certain smell in one of the cars he barks to tell you that there is something there and then you and your team you guys go and search that car and you collect the evidence from there the dog was just helping you get to that point A lot of the cases that use cadaver dogs, it all starts with somebody being reported missing.
0: So the case that they talk about in this episode is one from Detroit, Michigan. In 2011, a car was hijacked and a two-year-old was in the back of the car when it was stolen. The police didn't seem to believe the mother and father whose baby was kidnapped that the two-year-old was actually taken when the car was hijacked. The carjacker talked to the father and told him that his brake light was out. So when he went out to take a look, the carjacker pulled out a gun and pointed it at him. The father told the man that there was a child in the car, but the carjacker still got in and stole the car. The police didn't believe the story and questioned where the father really stopped in the car when this occurred. And I just have to say, I hate 911 calls, like whenever they have those in documentaries or on like other podcasts. And so they had the 911 call from this. They did. And it was like, gut-wrenching to listen to i cried it was it, it was very upsetting he was he was distraught it was
1: he like couldn't get any words out he was that upset yeah
0: and you know we've talked about this we've been really vulnerable with you guys like anything with children it clearly is gonna hit a little bit harder and like so i i had to pause for a minute and like step away because i wasn't expecting like to hear the 9 one call and yeah i've i've never never been able to do 9 calls on like in any TV show or if there's a podcast I'm listening to and they're like, all right, we're going to play the 911 call from this case. I fast forward on the podcast. Fast forward it. Yeah, I can't do it. So the father had a record. So the police seemed less inclined to believe him, even though he did not have a record of violence or anything like that. So it just kind of seemed like the police were making a lot of assumptions. And one of the first things the Detroit police did during the morning was shut down garbage pickup on that side of town. And that is just like such a gut-wrenching sign, because if you're looking for a live person, why are you shutting down garbage pickup? So this simply was because they'd already made their decision that the child was dead and that they thought that the father was guilty. So the police used record retrieval methods to show where phone calls were made from the father, and the father had told the police where he was driving that day, and the police turned it around to say that he had driven by an incinerator plant and disposed of the body there. They say this in the, I think it was his defense attorney said this in the documentary. You can't just like go into an incinerator plant and throw something in and drive away. I've never been to an incinerator plant, but I would believe that you have to have, there's got to be some kind of security. There has to be some type of clearance. Yeah, you can't, I would, I would imagine you can't just walk up there. If the father did kill this child, there should be an overwhelming blood evidence or DNA at the very least somewhere. And the body is still nowhere to be found, and this is when someone made the decision to fly in two cadaver dogs from England, and these two dogs were not there to look for live bodies, they were cadaver dogs, so they're looking for a cadaver and it's extremely difficult to transfer a body without leaving some type of residual odor of decomposition. For instance, if you pick up a cadaver with your hands and then you go to touch your car door or your clothing, everything that comes into contact with that cadaver is a potential source of intelligent value to a trained cadaver dog that they can actually detect that odor. I thought that was fascinating. Again, I'm just, what dogs can pick up is insane. So this is also very similar to, if not the same as, Lacar's exchange principle, which implies that a perpetrator of a crime will bring something into the crime and leave with something from it. And that enables forensic teams to come up with particular scenarios. The canine expert in the documentary and his cadaver dog are now in Detroit working this case. And the cadaver dog responded to the father's vehicle, the child blanket, and the child's car seat. And I want to point out that they're showing us all the forensic photos of the car, the blanket, and the car seat, which is exactly how a case like this should be handled. The more photos you take, the better to show the evidence or lack of evidence. So I know we haven't done any flags yet, so we'll give this a green flag. They found that it was unlikely that the father's car had actually been hijacked. So the likelihood was that he actually had some part in his daughter's disappearance. Before all this happened, the mother was told that they were bringing out dogs to help look for her daughter. They never told her they were cadaver dogs, so she She was confused as to why the dogs were barking at certain things, if the expert couldn't produce her child's body, or back up any of what the dog was detecting. And if you aren't trained in this forensic specialty, it's hard to understand why the dog is barking, what exactly it means, and is it, is it, like, what is it indicating? There's actual training fields that cadaver dogs are taken to for this purpose. Many of the human samples used in the field come from midwives, dentists, forensic anthropology centers, shout out to the body farm in University of Tennessee, because I believe they do cadaver dog training there. I read about it in Stiff by Mary Roach, which is an excellent book. And sometimes they'll also use the team's own blood. So at one of the training fields, a worker had gangrene in his leg and the leg had to be removed and he donated it to the training center, which that's... That's insane. Kind of badass on one level, but also
1: also weird on another level. <laughs> so
0: I have, and we've talked about this, me and Jess, about like donating my body to science. Which I will. When my time comes, I am donating my body to science. I don't need it. Put me to use somewhere else. Exactly. But he's kind of living, not exactly my dream of seeing my own autopsy, but he gets to see his own body donated. That is really cool. He gets to see, oh, hey, that's my leg. <laughs> I don't know if he viewed it like that, but I would be like, oh my God, I get to see like, they barked at my leg. (laughs) Like, I wonder how often that happens where somebody donates a body part that like has to be amputated, but like they're still alive to see it be put to use in science and stuff. That's just, that was just what I thought. (laughs) Midwives, I'm like, oh, they donate like people's placentas? Yeah. I would do that. Yeah. So I guess there are ways you can donate certain things to science while you're still alive. I'm going to be like researching what I can do. How do I donate my body without dying? I am going to end up on like a watch list with this podcast. All the things that I like, I just get curious about and I look up to talk about.
1: Our, don't look at our Google search history because it's all over the place. <laughs> oh,
0: it's too late. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already on a watch list. Especially our search history at work. Oh my God. Yes. If something happens like during an exam that I get curious about I'll like go to my computer and like google it later and I'm like that was a weird google search. So anyway these samples that are donated are buried in certain places at the site which is like basically a huge field and part of the woods so the dogs can train on detecting the smell. The Detroit case went to trial but all of their evidence seems circumstantial at this point because there was no body. The prosecutor told the courts that the father beat his daughter to death because she wet the bed, but they could not produce any urine-soaked sheet. All they could produce at trial was some saliva, mucus, with trace amounts of blood, which the mother points out would happen from, like, an irritated runny nose. And again, this episode shows all of the forensic photos with a ruler and scale and case identifier, which is a green flag photos like this are especially important to a jury so they can see clearly what you are talking about. The canine expert is recanting what happened that day and that his cadaver dog detected evidence in the car. The dog went underneath the father's car and he came out and gave a bark response next to the car which he interpreted as a positive result.
1: Obviously, when someone or something dies, their cells begin to decompose, and that's when the smell of death begins. Cadaverine or putrescine are the chemical compounds of death, so getting into our chemistry here. They are foul-smelling compounds produced when amino acids decompose in decaying animals, and cadaver dogs are trained to detect this specific scent. Although death does have a specific scent, it doesn't have a specific scent for each and every individual. So, for instance, if something bad happened to you today right here, five years from now, your scent of death would still be there. And that cadaver dog wouldn't be able to determine your scent of death versus another person's. But they can determine that, yes, there is a scent of death here. If the sense of decomposition is transferable, then shouldn't it have been on the father's clothes if he removed the body from the car seat? And the cadaver dog did not give a positive response to the clothing that was worn by the father that day. At some point, you have to come up with a body to back up what the dog is detecting. And during the trial, there was a critical piece of evidence. During the father's interview with Detroit police, he described someone with a ski mask kidnapping his daughter. The police had their own dog, a canine dog, and this dog found a ski mask within proximity of where the carjacking took place. The prosecution never put this witness on the stand. The defense actually had to call this officer to the stand on their own end, and the mask was black, and it was found less than a block from the carjacking. So despite this evidence, the jury found the father guilty for the homicide felony murder of his daughter. For homicide felony murder, the father got the maximum punishment of life without parole. As to child abuse in the first degree, he was sentenced to no less than 11 years and no more than 30 years in prison. And I think that he was given concurrent sentences, that kind of wasn't clear, but concurrent sentences are served simultaneously, and consecutive sentences are served one after another. So eight days after the child went missing, police had gotten a call from the 200,000 block of Holden Street in Detroit, and there were people fighting outside, and one of the officers saw a toddler pop up in the window. The officer thought to herself, there's a missing two-year-old out there, but I don't even know what she looks like. And then two days later, she was at home on her computer, and she saw a missing persons picture of a light-skinned toddler. This was the same child that she thought she saw at the house call the other day. She called her partner, and the partner told her that the cadaver dog hit on human decomposition. So, that child can't be it. And the female officer went to the lead homicide detective, and he kind of didn't want to hear what she had to say. But it was never confirmed if that child in the window was the missing girl or not. And then the episode is kind of ending now. And then sometime after the mother was at home, she had some friends drop by for a visit. And one of the friends had a little girl with her. The mother asked who the girl was. And it turned out to be her missing daughter. They hugged. And it it felt so real. But then the mom woke up. And it was, in fact, not real. And that was
0: like the saddest part of the story. I cried again. I cried when the 911 call happened and then as she's describing that, because she told it exactly like that. She told it like it was real and you're thinking like, oh my God. I'm like, wow, she's really, she's like way too casual about this. Yeah, and then she's like, and then I woke up and that's how it happens every night. I dream that I find her and it's not real and I'm just like so sitting on the couch sobbing. It's
1: so sad that like to this day that missing daughter hasn't been found. The family and many others believe that the child was kidnapped and she is still alive
0: somewhere out there. It's heartbreaking. So, this show, it didn't this true crime that they were talking about didn't really have a satisfying ending. They didn't actually find this poor missing girl, and to this day, she's still missing. So we wanted to talk about another case where a cadaver dog actually helped find a missing person's body and how valuable these dogs can be to forensic teams. So between July 5th and July 7th of 2017, four young men were reported missing in Pennsylvania. The search involved over 50 law enforcement investigators. The team used cadaver dogs, and the dogs detected something at a 12 and a half foot grave
1: that's a deep grave
0: that is deep like just for reference i'm sure everybody's heard the term six feet under because like that's typically the depth of a grave so 12 and a half feet is over double that that's a lot of work so the grave had the body of one of the missing men and as well as other human remains those cadaver dogs were vital in locating the body of dean finichiero 19 years old who was one of the four missing men the three other men were Jimmy Patrick, 19, Mark Sturges, 22, and Thomas Mio, 21. The murders were carried out by Cosmo DeNardo and Sean Michael Kratz, both 20 at the time of the murders. The four victims were murdered in three separate incidences, each after DeNardo arranged to sell them marijuana. Jimmy Patrick was the first to go missing, and he was last seen around 6 p.m. on July 5th, and then he failed to show up to work the next day. He met Donardo that night to buy four pounds of marijuana. Donardo shot him and then used a backhoe to bury his body. Finuciero was last seen around 6.30 p.m. on July 7th. His remains were found on July 12th, along with the remains of Sturges and Mio. He also agreed to buying marijuana from Donardo, and that was the first murder to involve Kratz. The two men repeatedly shot Finiciero, and his body was placed in a metal oil tank that had been converted into a pork roaster. Sturges met with Mio at around 6 p.m. on July 7th, and they both did not show up to work the next day. They met Donardo at a church to buy marijuana, and they were both shot when they were getting out of their vehicle. When Donardo ran out of ammo, he drove over the still-alive Mio with a backhoe and then placed both bodies in the metal tank with Finiciero's body. Donardo attempted to unsuccessfully burn the bodies using gasoline, and then he used the backhoe to bury the tank containing the three bodies. Donardo confessed to killing the four men, and he said he did so because he felt cheated or threatened during the drug transactions. He told investigators where to find Patrick's body, buried at another gravesite. The science of cadaver dogs is a fascinating combination of biology and single minded training. Without the cadaver dogs working on this investigation, they wouldn't have been able to find the bodies of the three men that quickly. It's so hard to accept that somebody is gone, and the work that these search and rescue teams do with cadaver dogs is extremely important into giving closure to families. The 12 and a half foot grave, I know, he didn't do it with like a shovel, so he had the backhoe but it's so deep that the dog was still able to. I was just going to gonna
1: say, the dog is still able to smell something that yeah. deep in the ground. That's crazy insane. And also incredible that dogs can do that. Yeah. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and zero red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Exhibit A does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast and if you want to learn more about forensics and true crime, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at InsideTheMorguePod, so feel free to follow us and DM us with any questions. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye!